0: Heavenly Father, we do commit this time to you. Lord, we know that the cross is the most important event in all of human history. It isn't just simply the intersection of human life, Lord. But the cross becomes the place where forgiveness and love and hope and salvation and reconciliation is possible. So, Heavenly Father, we commit this time to you. Lord, we pray that you would prepare our hearts as we walk with Jesus. In Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 19, beginning in verse 16, it says, Then he delivered him to them, to be crucified. So they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Therefore, the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews. But he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered. What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four pots to each soldier a part, And also the tunic, now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said, therefore among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it. Whose it shall be that the Scripture might be fulfilled, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus' his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother, And the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst now, a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop and put it in his, to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head. He gave up his spirit. In this passage, we see the walk to the cross in verses 16 and 17, the wrongdoers on the cross in verse 18, the writing that's above the cross in verses 19 through 22, the wardrobe below the cross in verses 23 and 24, the women at the cross in verse 25, and then the words from the cross in verses 26 through 30. Like I said, my father died this week, and my family and I flew to New Orleans to bury my father in in the family mausoleum that's on the west side of the Mississippi River, and much of my father's life was spent in and around that river and around the haunts of the French Quarter downtown. And as a small boy, he would go to the farmer's market where he first learned to buy and sell things. He bought and sold produce and he graduated to selling anything from firecrackers to uh, cars. And as an adult, he would buy and sell anything that he perceived to be of value. And any, In other words, if somebody wanted it, he would find it and sell it. And he spent time as a bartender and a car dealer and a nightclub manager in places that would have been very familiar for, for those who grew up in the quarter. Places like the Ivanhoe and the 544 Club. and He later um, managed places at Sancho Panza's and Georgie Porges, which was at high atop the Hyatt Regency. My father lived as they say in New Orleans Lodge. He uh, gambled. And according to my calculations, he probably made and lost at least $3 million. We stayed at a famous hotel called the Royal Sinesta, which is right across the street from the Abyssinth Club. Now, the Abyssinth Club was a place where presidents and pirates and riverboat pilots hung out. It wouldn't have been unusual to find Andrew Jackson there, and Jean Lafitte there, and Mark Twain there, and they had all gone to the Quarterstone Oak Bar, and they drank a very strong liqueur that tastes like licorice on fire. And on Bourbon Street, there are strip joints now, operated by people like Larry Flint's Barely Legal Club, stilettos and an odd assortment of jazz clubs and nightclubs and fright clubs. And on one of the wickedest streets in the world, I found a card lying in the street. And I have the card in my pocket. And it says, warning, the back of this card may offend you. Now, it's the hope that jaded tourists will pick it up in the hopes of finding a racy picture on the back. But the first few sentences read, I know it's something you may not like to think about, but I have a very important reason for wanting to remind you that you are part of the ultimate statistic. Ten out of ten people die." One day your heart will stop beating and you will be dead. And the Bible states that you'll be judged by the holy and the righteous God who created the universe. Will you be innocent or will you be guilty? And many people on Bourbon Street, there are tourists. Others, it's just their job to be there. New Orleans is a city famous for saints and sinners and cynics. Perhaps the most famous cynic who ever lived, Oscar Wilde himself, said, A cynic is a man who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. So how do you measure the price of a life and a soul? The Apostle Paul was no stranger to port cities and sinners and cynicism. He said, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And Paul continues in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, and he writes, we preach Christ Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. And all four gospel writers treat the death of Jesus in detail because the the cross is the message of Christianity. Without the cross, the Bible becomes a book without a message. And the gospel message is for those Who have tried their best and failed. But it's also for those who haven't really tried their best. And they've also failed. You see, the gospel is G, good news. G, God's grace. G, to guilty men. O, offered to all. And O, obeyed by faith. S, salvation by an S, substitutionary sacrifices, a P, peace and pardon proclaimed through P, propitiation, E, eternal life given, E, everyone that believes with L, light and L, liberty and L, love. For people in New you have to spell it out. It was St. Augustine who wrote, If you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, it's not the gospel you believe, but it's yourself. New Orleans is famous for gospel music. But gospel means something different there now. It means something religious. It's a religious occupation or something religious that you do. You know, my father had a New Orleans style funeral with a jazz band, a tuba and a trumpet and a trombone and a lady came out and she began to sing a closer walk with Jesus and we walked to the crypt. It reminded me of what we were studying, the walk to the cross. In verse 16 it says, Then He, that is Pilate, delivered Him, that is Jesus, to them, that is the religious leaders, to be crucified. Then they took Jesus and they led Him away. When you see that phrase, then they took Jesus, it meant that a group of four Roman soldiers, it was called a Quatorian, in the ancient world, this is what happened when you escorted the prisoner away from the scene of judgment. And according to the scholar William Barclay, the routine for execution by crucifixion was always the same in the ancient world, particularly in the Roman world. The case is over. The criminal is condemned. The judge always said, Ebus, ad crucum. That's Latin for you will be crucified. It's the same kind of phrase that we have in our own legal system when the judge wraps his gavel and he says, I have found the defendant guilty. You will now enter into your judgment or into your punishment. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that the soul that sins, it shall surely die. The reality is that every human being who is born on this planet will grow up and will die, and after that will face a true and a living God. And a careful reading of all of the gospel accounts gives us the order of events. Number one, Jesus is taken to Golgotha. That's what it says in Matthew twenty-seven thirty-three, and Mark fifteen twenty-two, and Luke thirty-three twenty-three thirty-three, and in John nineteen seventeen, and then. Jesus is offered a drink it's vinegar mixed with myrrh to dull the pain but then the drink is refused we find in Matthew 27:34 and Mark 15:23 then we know that Jesus is crucified between two robbers in Matthew 27:35 and in Mark 15 and in Luke 23:33 and then Jesus utters his first cry from the cross Father forgive them in Luke Chapter 23, verse 34. And then the soldiers divide his garments in Matthew 27, 35. And Mark 15, 24. And Luke 23, 34. And then the Jews mock Jesus in Matthew 27, 39. And Mark 15, 29. And Luke 23, 35. And then the robbers revile him. One repents and believes and the other does not repent and rejects Matthew 27:44 and Mark 15:32 and then there's the second cry from the cross this day you will be with me in paradise Luke 23, 43. and then there's a third cry woman behold your son in all there will be seven things that Jesus will say from the cross we don't have time to look at all of them But I want to draw your attention to the third cry, which is found in our text, where Jesus says, woman, behold your son. And in verse 17, it says, and he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha condemned criminals normally carried their cross. The horizontal beam, the beam that was placed on the first beam was called the patibulum. So there was an upright stake and then there was a cross beam. It was called the petibulum and they would take that cross beam to the site of the execution and in the Roman world the victim was usually stripped naked for the procession and execution as well although this full nakedness may have shocked and offended Jewish sensibilities and so for courtesy's sake they may have allowed the prisoner to remain robed until they come to the place of execution we know that the soldiers have his clothes in Latin the place was called Calvary and the place must have been outside the city walls because it wasn't lawful to execute a person inside of the city walls and why was it called the place of the skull Scholars have debated this for years and years and years. There is a legend that arose that Adam's bones and his skull was placed on this particular place. There was a legend that said this is the place where Adam was buried. Others say it was called the place of the skull because... Because this was the place of execution and human bones would have been scattered everywhere. But that doesn't make sense because in the Jewish culture and in the Jewish tradition, human bones aren't left out in the open because any observant Jew who picks up a human bone has defiled himself or herself. The most likely reason is that it's a quarry of limestone that's on the shape of a hill. And this was the hill where they hewn stones were taken to create the temple and to create the temple mount. And if you go, even today, there is a place and it looks like you can see two hollowed out eyes and a hollowed out nose and and a hollowed out mouth. It becomes the type and the picture of death. It's the universal symbol of death. It's the universal reminder that, that people die. And we go from the walk to the wrongdoers on the cross. Look at verse 18. It says where they crucified Him and two others with Him. One on either side. And Jesus in the center. For those of you who have been following along in John's Gospel, you remember that Pilate offered an exchange, if you will, this Jesus for Barabbas. This cross in the middle was meant for Barabbas. With the expression, where they crucified him, is interesting because John the Apostle, who's an eyewitness to the event, leaves out. The bitter details. Every person reading this manuscript in the first century would have known what it meant to be crucified. They knew what it meant to be placed on a piece of wood, and they would take first of all the right hand and they would bind the right hand and as they bound it to the piece of wood, they would take a nail and then they would drive it right through the wrist bone, entering the wood and then they would take the left leg and attach it to a plate of wood and and hammer the left leg and while The victim was screaming and writhing in pain. The soldiers would then take the left hand and the right foot and repeat the execution ritual. The early church father, Irenaeus, wrote a generation later, through a tree we were made debtors to God. And so through a tree we have our debt canceled The irony was not lost on him that through rebellion and disobedience we lose and through obedience and submission we win. the preacher J.C. Ryle wrote, one thief on the cross was saved, that none should despair, and only one that none should presume. The German martyr and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, quote, The cross is God's truth about us, and therefore it is the only power which can make us truthful. When we know the cross, we are no longer afraid of the truth. And the truth is that there's something dreadfully, dreadfully wrong with human beings. The two men who were executed, we learn from the other gospel accounts, were bitter. Both began to revile Jesus. Both began to scream, if you really are who you say you are, save yourself and then save us. And as the day wore on, as the minutes became hours, one of the thieves on the cross turned to Jesus and said remember me when you come into your kingdom he didn't have time to be baptized and he didn't have time to go to church and he didn't have time to give tithes at the church and he didn't have time to bring forth the fruits of repentance and he didn't have time to look and act and behave like what you and I would normally call a Christian, but Jesus said these words to him. He said to him, this day you'll be with me in paradise. Luke's Gospel has him saying in Luke chapter 24, verse 42, we are punished justly. We are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Max Lucado writes, quote, The essence of eternity through the mouth of a criminal. I am wrong. Jesus is right. I have failed. Jesus has not. I deserve to die. Jesus deserves to live. The scene transitions from the walk to the cross and the wrongdoers on the cross to the writing that's placed just above the cross. Look at verse 19. It says, Now Pilate wrote a title and he put it on the cross. And the writing was Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. By the way, that word title appears only here in all of the Greek New Testament and only in verse 20. It's the Greek word titlos. It meant a notice or a sign or a An inscription. In the ancient world of the Roman people, sometimes a placard was hung around a condemned person's neck where the crime that he or she was charged with would be placed on the placard, and sometimes they would wear the sign, and sometimes the Roman centurion, who's part of the Quaternion, would. Carry the sign, and here is the picture. The Roman soldier holds the placard in the front for all the world to see, and there is a Roman soldier to the right, and there is a Roman soldier to the left, and there is a Roman soldier in back of the condemned criminal. And they would walk in as many public places, through as many public streets as they possibly could, showing the sign and the reason for the execution. Later, the writ of execution would be posted over the top of the condemned person's head. And remember, that's his crime. Jesus of Nazareth. He's the king. The promised king. The king who has come, the the king who just a week earlier, the crowds had lined the streets and shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It says in verse 20 that many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. And so we know, we know, we know, remember that the place of crucifixion, it was illegal to crucify or execute a condemned criminal within the city walls. And so the place of execution would have been at a crossroads. And by the way, if you go to Jerusalem, even today on one side of the city walls is is the road that leads directly to Damascus. And on the other side, there is the, the road that leads to the sea. This is the crossroads. And there are three languages that are spoken primarily Hebrew and Greek and Latin. This is the language of business and the language of government and the language of religion. As a matter of fact, there was an ancient saying, that the Greeks gave us culture and beauty and the Romans gave us law and the Hebrews gave us religion. But nothing could be further from the truth. In Jesus, we have beauty. Perfect beauty. Perfect obedience and perfect friendship with God. In Jesus, we see the law and the prophets thoroughly fulfilled, supreme, supreme thought about Jesus as He is the exact and perfect representation of everything that God really is. It's not a mistake that it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin Massey Shepherd writes, quote, "The gospel is not presented to mankind as an argument about religious principles, nor is it offered as a philosophy of life. Christianity is a witness to certain facts, to events that have happened, to hopes that have been fulfilled, to realities that have been experienced. The gospel is" a testimony to the reality of a person who has lived and died and who has been raised from the dead to live forevermore. Christianity isn't simply a way of life. And it isn't simply a worldview, a way of looking at the world. It is that and more. It's the testimony of a real life lived And in verse 21 it says, Therefore the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews. But he said, I'm the king of the Jews. As a matter of fact, in the original language, it leaves the reader with the impression that that the religious leaders repeatedly demanded that Pilate take the, 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 the sign down. The emphasis being, take it down, take it down, take it down. Over and over again, like a child pestering their parents about something that they really, really want. Over and over and over again, they kept pestering Him. The religious leaders want the kingdom of God. But they don't want the King. Have you ever prayed a very common prayer? Maybe you grew up in a religious tradition where it wasn't unusual for you to pray... Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And perhaps you prayed it every day. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And you pray the prayer for the kingdom to come, but you don't want the king in your heart. The religious leaders have prayed for a kingdom, but they've rejected the king. And there can be no kingdom of God in our heart unless there's a king in our heart. And so they want the Roman governor to tear down the sign. But look what it says in verse 22. I found this interesting this week. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Do you remember those who have been following along with me in John's Gospel? Do you remember how equivocating and hypocritical Pilate has been? I find you not guilty. I find you not guilty. I find you not guilty. And then they condemn him. How do you find someone not guilty three different times and then execute him? How is a person who's so equivocating, who's so willing to give in, now not willing to give in? (laughs) Doesn't that remind you of your parents? Where they draw the line and they're not willing to give in. It's, it's, It's where you won't budge on things that don't matter. The religious leaders have recently screamed, we have no king but Caesar. And they totally rejected their king. And this same pilot, weak and equivocating about the trial, is now stern and unyielding. He was unsure about sentencing this prisoner to death, but now he's certain about the inscription. What I've written, I've written. And then we see the wardrobe below the cross. Look at verse 23. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified, Jesus took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart. Now you understand about the four soldiers. Each soldier gets a part and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam. It was a single garment woven from the very top to the very bottom. The word translated tunic is the NIV, I think, translates this undergarment. But every self-respecting Jew would have worn five pieces of clothing. And I'm going to talk about that in just a moment. Look at verse 24 before we get there. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it. Whose it shall be that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. You see, one of the perks of the job of executing criminals was the soldiers got to divide the criminals' wardrobe. Can you imagine being a police officer and and if you you were the officer in charge of executing the criminal, you got all of his estate? Hey, yeah, we're going to divvy it up. Now, again, like I said, every self-respecting Jew wore five articles of clothing. Do you know what they were? His shoes, his turban, his girdle. Go ahead and laugh. Yes, guys wore a girdle back in those days. No, it's not the kind of girdle that girls wear. It's a sash that a Jewish man would tie around the center of his robe. And so shoes, turban, girdle, or a belt or a sash, and it was usually ornate, his tunic and his outer robe. And so to cut the the outer robe into four pieces would have been a complete waste. And so, oddly enough, One soldier almost certainly got his shoes and one soldier almost certainly got his turban and the other soldier received the outer robe. But the soldiers are going to gamble for the seamless robe. You know, there's a legend that Mary made this robe for Jesus. You know, there are two kinds of legends. The kinds of legends that make sense and then the kinds of legends that don't make sense. This is one of those legends that makes perfect sense. And let me tell you why. It wouldn't have been unusual for a Jewish mother to weave a garment for her children. They didn't have target. They didn't have Nordstrom's back in those days. Your mother wouldn't take you necessarily, although there were bazaars and there were silk and there were cloth and there were some handmade clothes. It was very, very rare to have more than one set of clothes. And so it it makes perfect sense to me that a Jewish mother would make a robe for her son. What is remarkable is the crass insensitivity of the gambler because you can imagine as the Roman soldiers are gambling for this particular garment there is a mother there who is watching her son being executed but it's the sights and the sounds that all of a sudden come flooding into your memory when you see someone that you love that you care about their life slipping away My father had a love-hate relationship with gambling. My father used to say, You got money, you funny. You broke, you're a joke. My father would say, Gambling is a sure thing of getting nothing for something. Isn't that ironic? It's a sure way of getting nothing for something. What is it about the idea of getting something for nothing that so drives people? The soldiers were gamblers. But if you read carefully, if you read carefully, guess what you're going to discover? That Jesus also gambled. Do you know what Jesus was gambling on? Jesus was gambling that everything that his father told him was true. Jesus was gambling that all of the prophecies were true. Jesus was gambling that the reality of this life and that his death was meaningful and that he would be raised back to life. Jesus is placing everything on red. You know most of my father's life he bet on black. And many of the people, the religious leaders, were betting on black. They were betting that death is all that there is. They were betting on the fact that once the lights go out, they are out. And guess what? In a real sense, each and every person is a gambler. And each and every Christian is betting everything on the fact that Jesus is Lord. And that the Bible is true. And that the cross is Saves sinners. Long ago, there was a man named Stutter Kennedy who wrote a poem based on a biblical scene. There was a very famous painting of Jesus hanging on the cross and the Roman soldiers gathered underneath that cross gambling for this particular garment. He wrote, quote, and sitting down, they watched him there. The soldiers did. There, while they played at dice, He made His sacrifice and died upon His cross to rid God's world of sin. He was a gambler too, my Christ. He took His life and threw it for a world redeemed. You know, my father's best friend, growing up, he knew him ever since he was a child, maybe 16 years old. There was a younger man named Delbert, but everybody began to call him the Champ. You know, my father's friends had very colorful names, like Joe the Plumber. This is before the election, Joe the Plumber. Like Fat Tony Bone. Like CC, I go, Dad, why do you call your friend C.C.? Because he drinks Canadian club like a fish. And this, Dad, why do you call the champ, the champ? And my father said, because he's the champ. I go, Dad, what does that mean? He's the champ. Dad, when you ask for a definition, you don't usually define the word with the word. Why is he called the champ? my dad said, because he never lost the cause. You can't beat this guy. You can't beat him. He's the champ. We live in a world where people are constantly taking chances. And when things don't necessarily go your way, some people are tempted to cheat. the Bible makes it abundantly clear that the ultimate bet, the ultimate bet that each and every person will make is to ask and answer the question whether or not Jesus is Lord. Look at the women at the cross in verse 25. It says, now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. You'll notice that not all of the people gathered around the cross hated Jesus or despised Jesus. There was a, a small group of five people who loved Him. And John mentions Mary, His mother. And now she understands the words spoken when Jesus was still a nursing child. You'll remember in Luke chapter 2, verse 24, when Mary presented Jesus to the temple. It says that Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother behold this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel and for a sign which shall be spoken against yea a sword shall pierce through thy own soul also that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. This mother who bore this child Who ministered to this child. Who raised this child. Would begin to understand. Why his life was the way that it was. By the way four people are mentioned in the text. And of course John is there. The beloved disciple. Five is an interesting number. Because it's. The number of grace. There were five. Porches at the pool of Bethesda. Remember where the man was healed. There were five wise virgins who kept oil in their lamp. There were five loaves that fed the multitude. And next is Salome, that's Mary's sister, and Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And you'll notice that all of the Marys in the text have the same name. The name means bitter. We don't know very much about Mary, the wife of Clopas. And certainly we know the truth about Mary Magdalene, that she was one of Jesus' close companions. And this is the woman out of whom seven demons were cast out. There were people there who loved him. And it says in verse 26 when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And in verse 27 it says, Then he said to the disciples, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. Jesus assures his mother that she wouldn't finish the life that she had on the earth alone. Jesus provides for her future. By making his living legacy to John, the beloved disciple, Jesus is in effect saying, I want you to regard my mother as if she is your mother. Take her and care for her like you would your own mother. And some scholars have balked and said, He has other brothers and sisters. At this point, there are no brothers and sisters who apparently believe in Jesus. And in verse 28, it says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. And John traces these words to the scripture. He's thinking of Psalm 69, verse 21, where it says, they gave me poison for food and for my thirst. They gave me vinegar to drink. And Jesus is speaking these words. And even though you can't necessarily see it in the text because you haven't been able to follow along, Jesus has been hanging on that cross for some three hours. And this is the fifth time that Jesus has spoken from the cross and the hours of darkness have draped the earth. And Jesus has suffered the fierceness of the wrath of God, suffering for sinners in the sinner's place. In Psalm 32 verse 4 it says, for day and night your hand is heavy upon me. My vitality has been turned into the drought of summer. The text says in the Hebrew my moisture Has been turned into the drought of summer. The idea being, I have sweat out every last drop of moisture. And you can imagine the thirst of Jesus is overwhelming. Some of you have had family members who have died. And they've been in hospice care. And in the end, they're unable to take liquids. And there's an overwhelming thirst. The body cries out for And Jesus isn't simply crying out for water You might think that when you're looking at the text Clearly Jesus is the creator of all water The Bible says that Jesus created everything, every crystal clear brook, every stream, every river, every fountain of refreshing water. Every single drop of H2O on this planet was made by him. And the cruel consequences of crucifixion means that the body begins to dehydrate severely. It says in verse 29, Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, and they put it on hyssop, and they placed it on his mouth. Every Jew reading this particular passage would see that word hyssop, and their mind would immediately go back to the children of Israel celebrating the first Passover in Egypt to keep the death angel at bay. And to do that, they would place a hyssop reed, and it's a long branch, almost like grass, only it's thick, and they would make it into like a brush, and they would paste it. They would sew it together, and they would soak it in the lamb's blood, and then they would place across a a, on the lentil, they would make a stripe across the doorpost, and then they would make another stripe over the, the side of the doorpost, and it would form a perfect cross. And it's no coincidence that they soak the reed and they place it to His mouth. But Jesus' thirst isn't simply for water. Jesus wants to satisfy His Father in heaven. Jesus wants His life and His death to please His Father. But more than pains racked him there was the deep longing thirst divine that thirsted for the souls of men dear Lord and one was mine it wasn't simply water that he wanted it was you he was thirsting for you the writer of Hebrews said for the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross. He was thirsty for your friendship and for your fellowship. And in verse 30 it says, So when Jesus had received the sour wine, He said, I it is finished. And bowing His head, He gave up His spirit. It's one word in the Greek text. To By the way, tetelestai is one of the most common words that was used in the ancient world. In New Orleans, when you go to New Orleans, people, the way they greet each other is very different. It's a different city. They say, "Well, yeah? Now, who would ask a question? I'm right here. What are you? Well, yeah. But "well, yeah, doesn't mean where, yeah. It means how are you? It is Finnish was a common word and it was used by the merchants and and when a deal or a transaction was made they would say to shepherds and priests used it in the temple as the sheep were coming up if the sheep met the standard you know what the priest would say to servants when the work was completed when their employer or the boss said, have you gotten all of your work done? The servant would present themselves to the master and they would say to tell us die. Christ willingly and deliberately gives up his life and he now lays down his life. It is finished. And in one word, he sums up Every man-made announcement, every celebration, every sorrow, every manifesto, every notification, every edict, in one word, he says, we're done. It's over. Long before Calvary, human beings looked by faith for a lamb who would be slain on a tree. And every human being who has lived ever since looks back on a lamb. Who was slain on a tree. And when Jesus says it's finished, it means it really is finished. There's nothing left to do, there's nothing more to say. Satan is lost, Jesus has triumphed. And on the cross of Calvary, the past becomes the present and the present becomes the future as human beings are saved in the past and the present and the future. When Jesus cried to Telestai, the greatest person who ever lived, uttered the greatest word that was ever spoken, that affected more people than any other single statement that has ever been spoken by anyone, anywhere, at any time, peace, forgiveness, reconciliation has all taken place in one single moment. And look at something very, very special. Look what it says at the end of the verse. You might have missed it if you weren't paying attention. And bowing his head. Do you know why that's important? Because the text seems to indicate to us that the whole time his head has been up. His sight has been up. His head is lifted up. His countenance is up. He is seeing all things clearly. Jesus didn't swoon. Jesus doesn't die from the pressure or the pain. Jesus bows his head and dismisses his spirit with supreme composure. The cross didn't kill him. Billy Graham, who is my Facebook friend, Isn't that cool that he's my Facebook friend? Billy Graham wrote In the cross of Christ, I see three things. First, a description of the depth of man's sin. Second, the overwhelming love of God. And third, the only way of salvation. Someone put it this way. God gives us the cross. And then the cross gives us God. Peter Lewis wrote, At Calvary we see what sin deserves and what God requires. Calvary was too terrible to be an option. The suffering involved too enormous to be unnecessary. Unnecessary. And the sufferer too precious to his father to have been given over needlessly to such pain. Nothing matters more. And the reason why nothing matters more, it's because relationship with God matters the most, and that's how you experience it through a cross Heavenly Father we thank you and praise you for Jesus and we thank you for the cross of Calvary Lord we know that you've spared no expense so that we could experience hope so that we could experience life so that we could experience love so that we could experience forgiveness. And Lord, I pray for that person who's come here this morning and their heart isn't in a right place. It's in a wrong place. Their heart's far from You. Estranged. Bitter. Lord, just like the thieves on the cross... One came. One didn't. Lord, we pray that each and every person would come to Jesus in the knowledge that in Jesus, in the sacrifice of Jesus, there is hope. In the sacrifice of Jesus, there is forgiveness. and In the sacrifice of Jesus, there is reconciliation so, Heavenly Father, I pray that each and every person would pray that silent prayer inside of their own heart. Dear Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me in spite of my sin, in spite of my rebellion, in spite of my disobedience. Lord, I turn from those things and I turn to you. Because I know that there's really only one thing that's going to be coming up next. There's not a whole lot to look forward to when you're on a cross, except to die. In Jesus' name, amen.